Turn to Matthew's Gospel a moment. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, and verse 1. Famous piece of Scripture, very famous piece of Scripture. One of the most used portions, actually, of the whole Bible when it comes to understanding the days in which you live. You don't live in the 1800s. You don't live in the Middle Ages. God has chosen that you live 2011 in what I believe is the closing moments of history. Moments that get an enormous amount of attention in Scripture. Nowhere more so than Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately. They were frightened at what He had said. They came to Him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in My name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Earthquakes are currently increasing by 10% every year. Every year, there's 10% more than the previous year. Right? Verse 7. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of what? Birth pains. It's an important point that. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray each other and hate each other. And false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most, who don't connect to God their Father, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole earth as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The message I want to share with you this morning could not be more important. And it's won me some friends over the years, but it's also made me a few enemies because, well, some people can't take it. If you remember, about three and a half years ago was the last time we looked at this subject. And we, we produced a book, if you remember. It was called Living as an End Times Believer. And in that book, one of the chapters states the top ten things that you should know about being called by God, being appointed by God, and it's an enormous trust. You have God has placed, the Bible says, He's put His trust in you. God has put an enormous trust in you to be alive in the last minute. Man, I tell you what. Jeanette, if there was ten years and I knew that our house was going to burn down 
in a particular year, I would be very careful of the people who were there at that time because I would want them to get you out. I would think about those people and I would choose, as God says, God has chosen the times and the places in which we live. And we have a high honor, the same as those who were alive when Christ walked on the earth. High honor. High honor. And those who, who disrespected that, remember, he rebuked them. He said it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for them who had rejected Christ while he walked. That was the first coming. This is the second. Special responsibilities. Sorry, but it's true. Special responsibilities for those who saw Jesus. Special responsibilities are placed upon you because you're a Christian at the closing moment. Couldn't be more serious. This week I was just, you know, pouring my heart out to Pastor Tom who will be back with us in 31 days. 62 minutes and 2 hours and 10 seconds. We've got to get on with the work, Tom! And he was saying, I know, I know, I know. Can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do Yes, we can. Whatever it is, yes, we can. Let's try all means. Let's try everything. Let's throw everything at the devil we can throw at him. Amen? And see people saved as the world winds up. Let's not be docile or lazy or catch the disease that Everson just spoke about. Right? Let's get with the game plan. Important, folks. So important. See that list of ten things? The ten most important things that end times believers? We need to do a second edition because I found so many more. A few weeks ago, remember, we spoke about the demonic. Are the same amount of demons in the earth in all ages? No. There's more demons on the earth in the closing stages of time than there are in the beginning, in the middle. In the last days, demons will be released. So therefore, end times believers need to be particularly cute on that. We should know more about you know, discernment of the demonic than any prior generation. That's taking responsibility. That's taking responsibility for the days in which we live. But it just struck me, God forgive me, but it just struck me this week as I was looking at Job, which is our book today, but of course, I didn't see it. How can you read it and not see it? Disasters. Jesus said to you, those who are alive in the last moments, He warned us that disasters were going to come upon the earth and that we should be more informed, more able to deal with catastrophes than any prior generation because there's going to be more of them. First slide, please. Take a look at this graph. This is kind of scary. This is a graph of disasters since 1910. Look at it. Earthquakes increase, as I say, by 10% every year. Now, this only goes up to 2010 because if you go to 2011, it will go off the scale. There was more, as Pat Robertson just said. There was more disasters in the first six months of this year than the entire 2010 put together. You see? Things are moving for sure. You see, Christ is coming back. And that's easy, really, when you think He came the first time. It's easy to come the second time. And Jesus said it was like birth pangs. Could you put the World Trade Center up, please, Stefan? Take a look at this. We all remember this, right? Uh, for me, this is, the, this is the most significant day of my life. And I lived in a bomb zone in Belfast. But there was no day quite like this. 
Because Jesus said it would be like birth pangs. There's a big difference to a baby kicking and contractions. Would you agree, Eileen? Amen. (laughs) There's a big difference between a baby that kicks. That's one thing. You will have famines, you will have wars, you will have troubles. There's a big difference in that over history. And then the contractions. And for me, Jesus said that his second coming and the troubles that surround it would be like a birth. Because the one thing, if you, I'm sure the ladies will say, Amen. The one thing a baby does, when the contractions start, what's going to happen? That baby, that baby's coming out. Come what may, there's no way back. When the contractions start, that child is coming. And this is what this shows to us. It shows us that the end is truly, truly upon us. And there's no way back. I mean, we've looked over the weeks at the different, you know, crises that, 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 that have come upon the earth. The economic crisis that is different from every prior crisis economically, in my opinion. And I can back that up if you so wish. So, we... You, me, all Christians on the earth. We need to have a better working knowledge of God, judgment, and disasters, I think, than anybody before us. Because we're going to have to face the questions more often. Well, certainly amongst ourselves anyway. As many Christians just get very confused and even annoyed about this topic. They see famines. You see, it's a heartbreaking sight. I'm sure we give to Somalia because of the problems there, and I know many of you do too. But when you, when you see something like that happen, no wonder people question God and, and ask, well, what is going on? I thought you said there was a good God up there. Look at these, you know, parents, children dying of thirst. What sort of God is this? And that's an okay question to ask because people don't understand. But to be honest, folks, that question is actually asked by Christians more than it's asked by the lost. I'll say it again. The question, why doesn't God do something, you know, is asked more by us. Christians can be more confused on disasters than the lost. Could I have this slide of the lists of agnostics and all that, the different types of faith? You see, if you think about it, Atheists, for example. Atheists don't actually have a problem with a disaster. If you show an atheist an earthquake, what will he say? It's just, it's the earth. So he's got no problem with your God. It's not an issue to him. What about an agnostic? Well, agnostics don't know anything, right? I don't know, I don't know why this happens, don't know why that happens. It's not a problem. So a disaster, a famine is not a problem to an atheist. An agnostic just says, I don't know. Polytheists, those who believe in many gods, well, they don't have a problem. Because according to them, well, there's many gods and they're, they're having a barney up there. You know, they're having a fight and this is the way it works out down here. Sorry about that. And then you've got dualism. Those who believe there are two gods, one good and one bad. And when there's bad stuff going on in the earth, oh, that's the bad god. And when there's something good going on, oh, that's the good god. And then you've got two branches of monotheism. And then we're coming closer to, closer to our world. The first branch of monotheism believes that there's one God, but that he's good and bad. And when the earthquakes happen, he's having a bad day. (laughs) 
etc., etc., right? And then there's us. We are also monotheists, but the reason we have the problem is because we believe there is one God who is only good all the time. That's the problem. So actually, you as a Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian, are quite unique in terms of you know, world faiths. Because we believe completely that God is only good all the time, and therefore we need to have some sort of a concrete answer to give people when we see the great disasters that are coming on the earth and are increasing in their momentum. Certainly are. It's getting unbelievable today. So, the point of today is to give you some security as a Christian in what your testimony is. To give you some, it's like an evangelist. An evangelist who is not secure in their own faith, not a very good evangelist. You need to have great assurance to be a good evangelist because people pick that up. And it's the same when people ask you, if your friends in work say to you, why did the Twin Towers collapse? Why is there a famine? And you go, um, um, uh, I'll get back to you. It shows an insecurity. It shows that you yourself maybe have not processed or thought through, and that's, this is the biggest problem. We don't finish our thinking on these things. We tamper with it, and you can't do that. You need to stick with it till it's cooked, until it's done, and fully understand, particularly this topic, because of the days in which we live. However, let me come at it from this direction. What is the most common question that lost people ask? Anybody know? There's one question, statistically far higher. The question is this. Why doesn't God do something? Why, when the Twin Towers collapsed, why didn't God intervene? Why didn't He do this? Why didn't He do that? That's the number one question. And when you hear that question, folks, I want you to remember two things. Number one, it's a good question. So don't get all hyper-spiritual and dismiss people. There, I mean, in fact, there'd be something wrong with you, probably, if at some point in your life you didn't ask that question. I want to understand why. Lord, you're almighty. You're almighty. So... Why? How? What? Explain, show me. The second thing I want you to remember when people ask the question, why doesn't God do something, is that it shows within them a hunger for justice. Twin towers again, please. You see, look at these towers. When the people say, why doesn't God stop this? What they're saying is, why doesn't God get the bad people? Why doesn't God stop the... Why doesn't God deal with sin? So you see, even though they're lost, they're showing the fingerprint of God within their being. A cry for justice. And the irony, of course, is that that cry for justice comes mostly from the lost. Because Christians have a very... Well, at best, most Christians have a very vague understanding of God's judgment and God's justice in the earth. At best, it's vague. And at worst, it's completely apathetic. What's the oldest book in the Bible? They reckon it's Job. That it was, it, it covers a time. It was written by Moses or whatever before the first five books were written. 
and covers a very, very early period. Now, listen folks, <laughs> if it's the first book that was written to the human race, what topic does it cover? Disasters. Because Job had a bit of, he was a patriarch, so he had a whole tribe, a whole family, if you like. And the disaster that struck Job was not just a personal disaster for him, but it was also, if you like, a national disaster because he was the patriarch of his society, if you see that in modern day terms. So the first book that God sent into the human race was on the topic of how do we cope with not only personal disasters, but national disasters, and I'll deal with the, the Job issues at another time. But let's just, uh, in terms of personal disasters, but let's just pause a moment this morning and, and, and ask ourselves, when these things happen on the earth, is it God? Did God do this? Did God fly? Believe me, plenty of people have asked that question. Is God causing the earthquakes? Well, the... The proper answer is judgment comes in two forms. First of all, judgment is considered futuristically. The Bible speaks about the day of the Lord, right? It's judgment day. And it, it's, you know, paints that very big throughout scripture. There will be a judgment day. Believe me, right? There will be a judgment day. That's a futuristic type of judgment. But there's another type of judgment that's mentioned in various places in Galatians. And We'll call it an erstwhile judgment. And it's this. A man will reap what he sows. That is a type of judgment. You know the Greek, you see, see, see Jesus here when he says, this judgment will come on the earth and that judgment will come on the earth. He, it's, it's in Aramaic, but do you know what the word means? The word there? Crisis. The word, the actual Greek word for judgment is the word crisis. And what Jesus was prophesying, he said, hey, listen, in the last days, in the last moment, there will be crisis after crisis after crisis that come upon the earth. And you've got to ask yourself, guys, could I have my, my um, graph up there of the fish quotas? The reason we need to look at this again, because we looked at it about three and a half years ago, but I was quite astonished this week at the number of changes. Look at this graph. You know what this is? Fish. 2050. The current estimates are that there will be no more fish. What are we going to do then, Gordon? Huh? No more fish in the seas by the year 2050. That they will be so polluted. Actually, that's a sign, I believe, that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then Christ will return, right? And it's, it's a sign. Fish have always been a sign of salvation. There's no more for the Lord to do in the earth. It's a sign of the last days. That's what it is. But that's staggering. So do we live in a day when there's environmental judgment, environmental crisis? Absolutely. Do we live in a day when there's a social crisis? Could I have the riots up there? We all saw this, right? We all saw what happened, not just in this country, but look at North Africa, or currently in Times Square in New York and around the world. We have social crisis, humanitarian crisis, we have famines in Africa. Could I have that up, please? In fact, that's, that's an environmental crisis right there. Take a look at this. Some of you will not have been... Do you know what that is? Could you go back to the cows, please? Do you know what that is? 
cows. This, these are the cows that God gave Adam to look after. And what are men doing with them? They're burning them. Because what man did is man... This is where crisis comes from. Because you will reap what you sow. It's a form of judgment, folks. And when you see the environment collapse, when you see these things or economies collapse, this is the work of men. And that's where I want to bring you. This was a tragedy, a terrible tragedy. A woman called Rachel Carson wrote a book in 1983 called Silent Spring. And she wanted to answer the question, did God kill all the cows? You know, did God do this? Did God, did God do that? And there's several chapters in the book. But for example, one of the chapters, listen to this. She goes to India and she finds a lady there who first of all went blind and then died of cancer. And Rachel Carson, people look and they see the woman dying painfully, slowly of cancer and they say, why God? And she decided to look at the lady's life and investigate why, how, where could this cancer have, part, have come from. And she found that the lady, all her life, would go to the Ganges and wash in the water. But men put DDT because of the mosquitoes. It's forbidden now under international law. You're not allowed to use DDT. It's a disinfectant, it's a carcinogenic. Men put that in the water. And as a child she would wash, as a youth she would wash, as a young woman she was washed, and eventually she went blind. It ate away at her eyes. And eventually that got into her skin and caused her to get cancer. And Rachel Carson discovered that, hey, hey guys, no point in shaking your fist at God because it was people. You will reap what you sow. In fact, you can reap what other people sow. Other people put the DDT in the water and that lady paid the price. She went to Afghanistan and she found there a young child, nine-year-old boy, who had no legs because he had stepped on a cluster bomb. And when the child had his legs blown off, the people say, Why God? So she investigated it. Tell me what happened to the boy. Oh, the boy went out. Well, what did he step on? He stepped on a cluster bomb. Ah. During the war, the Americans had gone in. Cluster bombs are illegal under the Geneva Convention. They shouldn't have dropped those cluster bombs. They're not allowed to. So it wasn't actually God. It was the law of cause and effect is actually what it was. And she went on. She found a species of bird that was extinct. And she researched that and she found that that was because, again, of pesticides that they had put on the crops because of mosquitoes. But it was men, 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 not God. And so we need to stop and think a moment. Your personal choices have got social consequences. Your individual actions can actually have universal consequences. It's called the law of cause and effect. And we all live under it. And this, if you like, is a form of erstwhile judgment. It's a good law, by the way. Because because of this law, I can cause you good. Right? Very good. It's a good law. But it is the twisted and fallen nature of the human race that causes evil and causes harm. 
And this is, I mean, it's incredibly sad, folks. I, I recommend you get that book, actually. It's Rachel Carson, and the book is called Silent Spring. If we, basically, her conclusion is this. If we obeyed God, we would have a world in which there was harmony, order, and health. But because we disobey God, we have a world in which there is disharmony, disease, right? And complete disorder, as we saw in the riots or anything else. I grew up in Belfast. Listen, I lived in number 181 Clifton Park Avenue, right? Next door to me was the Murray family. Mrs. Murray was blown up outside our door. She was killed. A piece of lead hit her in the back from a building that was blown up just about seven, eight doors down from us. It was a hotel. A bomb went off and she was coming back, running back, and she was killed at the door, as were others that night. It was right next door to us. We were number 181. She was next door. Next door up. Who have we got? We've got the McGee family. Their nine-year-old daughter had her head blown off with a double-barrel shotgun. Terrible. And then their son, who I went to school with, he killed three guys actually involved in that murder. Next house up, the Heathcliffs. Very sad. They answered a knock at the front door. Boom. They shot the father dead. Mistaken identity. Wrong house. I'll never forget that. Because by the time I got out there, John had answered the front door. He just opened the door. They shot him dead. Wrong door. Wrong guy. And it just happened that his father was coming to visit at the same time. And the, the, the guys ran away. The father walked in, saw his son, and the father dropped dead. So you had father and son. And I'll never forget the chaos in our street at that time. God! No. Not God. Not God at all. People. Our forefathers sowed evil, discord, hatred, and we, you know, the, the, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's a, it's a future generation. I am reaping. I, I can stand there in Belfast in the midst of that chaos and think, what's going on, God? Because God would refer me back to my forefathers who sowed evil. And now future generations have to reap what has happened. And we do. I'll never forget when I came first actually to this church, to this city, 2006. In the first week I arrived, 35,158 cattle and sheep were burned. And by the end of the BSE crisis, judgment, crisis, crisis, judgment, cause and effect. By the end of it, 177,812 cows were discovered to have BSE. That's a lot of burgers. That's a lot of people getting sick. And thank God there was only 97 people who died. But I remember on the news a farmer, many farmers actually, they were walking across a field from the pyres and one of them was crying and full of fury. What, at, at, at the food chain? No, at God! And someone needs to take that guy aside and say, excuse me, you fed sheep to cows. That's what you did. You fed sheep to cows. That's not normal. That's not natural. And you, you broke the food chain. And it was that, that. That's the source of it. Not God. 
Turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Romans 11, 22. Just to stay in balance here. In various versions of the scriptures, this scripture here comes out very clearly, but it's a very good balanced scripture. Romans eleven twenty two. Consider, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Consider you, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. And when people ask you or they ask me, why doesn't God do something? You can be ready to tell them, well, actually, he has. He has certainly done something. Actually, he's still doing something and he will do something. But the human race, could I have my first triangle, please, Stefan? Take a look at this. There's a deeper problem when it comes to judgment on the earth than surface issues. And you need to understand that about the people you witness to. When they see, well, how can I put it? Fallen nature considers that love is the opposite of judgment. And the fallen human mind will often think, a person who loves me will never judge me. A person who loves me would never do me any harm, would never judge me in any way. There's no judgment whatsoever. But that's completely wrong. Next slide, please. Take a look at this. They think that love is the opposite of judgment. But love is not the opposite of judgment. What's the opposite of judgment? Mercy is the opposite of judgment. Not love. And all true love has within it Mercy and judgment. And God would not be a God of love if he didn't judge. And every parent knows this. As I say, I've made some enemies by going down this line in my time. One was a good friend of mine. He couldn't stand hell being mentioned. He couldn't cope with anything to do with justice or judgment. And he was a very nice guy. He was a great worker in our church. But he just couldn't cope with this topic. He actually used to work with heroin addicts and get them off heroin. And one day he came in, he, I, we, we had this debate going on for years, and one day he came into the church, and he had had an encounter, he had been working with this young man, who was on heroin. And the father was useless. Father wasn't helping at all. The son would go on heroin, and come back home, and the father would give him money. And the boy would go back out, and Frank would try and do good, but the father was making things worse. Giving the guy money to just go straight out and use heroin again. And Frank came in one day and he was furious. He said, the stupid father. Oh, I said, what's wrong? Well, every time the boy goes and uses heroin, when he runs out of money, he comes back home and the father just gives him, inverted commas, love and sends him out. Oh, why doesn't he do something? And I saw my moment <laughs> to kind of bring a little revelation to Frank. I said, Frank, what do you want then the father to do? Well, actually, what I want the Father to do is to bring a little bit of judgment. That's what I want. And he was able to see, in fact, he testified to the whole church how that incident had changed his perspective on God. Do you know what the Bible says? If parents do not discipline their children, they do not love. You don't love your children if you do not discipline your children. And that's not easy. No one likes to give discipline. No one. But it's important, you see. So the love of God has within it 
both mercy and judgment. And that's why he's a God of love. In fact, if you think about it long enough, you won't actually say, how can a God of love judge? What you will end up saying is, how can a God of love not judge? There will be a judgment by God Almighty of every single one of you. Me. Every person lost or saved, there will be a judgment. And God, for his part, has done everything to make that an easier route for you, to bring you to salvation. And by the way, the question we're asking today is, why doesn't God do something? That is an age-old question. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Look at this. This is a great scripture. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 23 The disciples asked Jesus the same question. Why don't you intervene? Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who went out and sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came along and sowed weeds. What you reap, you will sow. It was the enemy that sowed the weeds, not God. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came along and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And this is the servants then asking him to do something. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling up the weeds you may also pull up the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until harvest. That's the end time, the return of Christ. At that time, I will tell the harvesters first to collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then to gather the wheat and to bring it into my barn. Basically, what we have on the earth, folks, is people say, why doesn't God do something? Why did God let the Twin Towers get hit? Why didn't he remove those sinners? Well, if you keep on down that line of thought, you could say, why doesn't God remove every sinner from this building right now? Will anybody be left? Gordon? Did you say yes? No, okay. (laughs) Will anybody be left? There'll be not one, you see. And failure to see that, I can understand the world doing it. But you understand this. Here's the field. And it's growing up. And guess what? It rains on the righteous and the wicked. It rains on them both. And we find ourselves in this world. I find myself in Belfast. Haven't done anything wrong. Why am I surrounded by bombs and bullets? Because the weeds and the corn grow side by side. Why doesn't God do something? Well, you see, because it's not all over yet. And there's decades, I don't know, years, decades to go. I'm not sure. The Mayan people, that's getting a lot of publicity at the moment, isn't it? The Mayan people believed that the world would end in 2011. On the 24th of December, which is about 10 weeks away. And then when they went back into the calendar, they changed their minds. And more modernly, in the last 10 years or so, now they think it's 2012, which is where the film and stuff came from. So they knocked it forward a year. They always used to think that prophecy was actually in about ten weeks' time. (laughs) I don't want to scare you or anything. The end is here. 
the end is here. I'm not endorsing main prophecy, by the way. Don't go out of here and say I said that. But um, very often, whether it's demonic or not, it can be true. You know that? When they ran along after the apostles, it was a demon. What did the demon say? These are the sons of God. True. True. And they said the woman had a demon. She was speaking the truth. Telling what was going to be. you just got to be... The same thing happened Jesus. And so sometimes in these things, you can see a bit of history. And goodness knows what happened back then. But I reckon these we are very, very close to the last days. Very, very close to the last days. 2012, 2020, to that. I don't know. I don't want to set dates. I don't think that's right. But I see the signs and the times. I see that the contractions have started. And I know this. We will remain on this earth. Weeds and wheat side by side. And you personally may have to endure some disasters. And that's why the first book, Job, was written. Because the flood, the first big disaster, was just about to come. And God wanted to prepare them for it. And he sent them Job, which was a, a, a guideline for all those who read it to understand how, a, how, to, how to cope with personal disasters and how to cope collectively with a disaster. Because this is the era in which we lived. In which we lived. Remember when the tower fell? Remember? They were walking and there was how many? It was nine people killed? And the disciples were with Jesus and they said, Look, Jesus, why did this happen? Were those men evil? Were those men bad? And Jesus said, Shh, silly. You need to concentrate on your own salvation. You need to get your name written in the Lamb's book of life. What's he saying? The tower could have fallen on you. That's what he was saying. He was saying, get saved. These are unbelievable days. And when people say to you, why doesn't God do something? You know how to answer them? Last slide, please. Do you know how to answer them? You tell them this. He has. Thousands of years ago, God was so vexed with the human race. I think it's the saddest line in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 6 where it says this, When God looked at the world, He saw that the thoughts of men were only evil all the time. Not some of the time. Not half the time. The thoughts of men were only evil all the time. And God was vexed. And so what did He do? What did He do? He flooded the whole earth. So when you say, why doesn't God do something? Listen, He has. He has. He was so angry, so vexed, that He flooded the whole earth. And when He saw it, the Bible says His heart was was wrenched. His heart was broken to see the death on the planet of the creature that He loved, the men He had made. And He said this, I will never flood the earth again. And he chose another way. Chose another path. He was so angry at it. And people say, well, there's floods today. Yes, caused by men. Subterranean atomic explosions. They blow up atom bombs in the sea as they do their nuclear tests and they shake the tectonic plates. And then we wonder why there's a tsunami or why there's, you know, earthquakes, etc. Yes, there's earthquakes caused by or floods caused by men. Just like the diseases and everything else with them. So God has. 
And at this point, he's held back. You tell them he has. Secondly, you tell them he is. So when they say to you, why doesn't God do something? He is doing something, folks. It's called the law of cause and effect. And whether you realize it or not, every day we actually live in an erstwhile judgment of sorts. We're being judged. Whether someone, you reap what you sow, or as I said earlier, you can also reap what someone else sows. And that's just a sad reality. And lastly, you tell them he has. You can tell them he is. But most importantly, (laughs) what's the last one? Why doesn't God do something? Believe me, he will. 2,000 years ago, God Almighty sent his son into this world. And I remember when I got saved. I remember the night I got saved. It was a Thursday night. I was sitting in a Roman Catholic church, completely lost. I was not born again. And I I was just seeking God. That's all. I had met someone who was saved. And it scared the life out of me. And the reason it scared me was this, because I said in my heart, if he's saved, I'm, I'm not. That's what it did to me. When I saw the light, I realized I must be in darkness. And I went to that church in search of God. And I repented of everything I could think of and still was not saved. Repentance alone doesn't save. Remember, repent, believe, be baptized, receive. And I repented of everything and I sat there and I, I had a Bible, I was reading and I remember sitting thinking, do you know what, God? You don't need to save me. He's saved. And I've met lots of people now who are saved, but I'm not. What a tragedy that is. And you know what, God? I understand that you might not save me. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe you will. But I said this to God. I remember it. I said, you know what, God? Even if you don't save me, for the rest of my life, I will tell people about you. Even as a lost person, I will commit my life to telling the world that Jesus is Lord and died on a cross to take away sin. And you know, as I was sitting there in that church and praying, for the first time, I saw the cross. For the first time, having been brought up a Catholic and surrounded by statues and crucifixes, for the first time, it made sense. I thought, I see. I see. That's what you were doing there. I could see Christ on the cross. And for the first time I realized I can't pay my own sin debt. I can't get to heaven. He needed to die for my sin. I got it, Lord. What a blessed revelation. And up until that moment in my life, I had thought, if I'm good enough, If I'm this, if I'm that, I'll try and work my way to God. But what a blessed moment it is. What a blessed revelation it is. When maybe for some of you this morning, for the first time, you see why Christ was on the cross. You see, folks, if you could get to heaven yourself, He doesn't need to go to the cross. 
You know, if I had a coin, I haven't got a coin, I can toss it away. You know the coin? It doesn't know it's lost. It doesn't know it's lost. And that's what you can be like this morning. You know what Scripture says? Jesus came to earth to seek and save that which is lost. And some of you here this morning, this is the tragedy. Some of you here this morning, you're not born again. And maybe like me, you come from a religious background. And you, like me, could have false loyalties all my life. My parents were fantastic. We were brought up as Catholics. They were good people. But there's something more important than family loyalty. Amen. And I can remember thinking, do you know what? No loyalty on this earth. Nothing on this planet is going to stop me getting saved. I am going to do everything in my might. And when I saw that cross and saw Christ had died to take away my sin, it's just as simple as asking Him, Lord, please, me, save me. Born again. And as I said to the students when they arrived just a few weeks ago, please, everybody listen if you're not saved. Remember what I said to you? Why not you? Why not you? If you know that you're born again, you've repented of your sin, and Jesus Christ is alive in you, you're saved. Put your hand up. Hallelujah. Wow. Just over half. And all I would say to the rest of you, number one, you're in the right place at the right time. Give us a wave, Peter. Give us a wave. Just wave. Don't be afraid. (laughs) This is Peter. Peter's a lawyer. His work is law. And the most important piece of advice a lawyer will ever give you is what? Settle your case out of court. If it's a good lawyer. (laughs) Settle your case before the... before the judgment. Before the judgment. Jesus said that. Said a wise person will settle their case and not leave it. And I challenge those of you here this morning who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, who have never repented. Do it today. Do it now. Because you do not know what lies outside that door. Remember our friend in Lagos, Philomena. I can't remember her second. Philomena Agaga. She was a Assemblies of God minister in Lagos. She was a radical evangelist, a street worker, a street preacher. And she was out there one day in Lagos streets, very busy, very packed and busy roads. And she was working her way down the street, giving out leaflets. And she saw this businessman coming towards her. She got a leaflet and she said, excuse me, sir, just a leaflet about Christ. And the businessman pushed her aside and he took a step. And he said, I haven't got time. He was hit by a truck. And I'll remember her testimony. She said, His blood, as I was there, His blood went up in the air and down on the ground. Never a truer word did he speak. Never a truer word in his life. Because guess what? He didn't even have a second left to live. And with the one second he had, 
He used it to reject Jesus Christ. Heaven help us. God help us. And may God help you. And may He open your eyes this morning. I mean, put the Twin Towers up, Stephen, please. The baby, the babies are coming. And you need to get used to it. We don't know when, we don't know how. But the end times are upon us. The contractions have started. This is what it will be like in the last days, said Jesus. Like a woman giving birth. The contractions will start and then there's no way back. And you just happen to be alive at this time. I repeat, you're in the right place at the right time. It's just one thing left for you to do. And that's repent. All of those who just raised their hands, they're no more holy than anybody else. They're not special. They're just people who one day, instead of stepping in the traffic, stepped towards Christ and took a hold of Him and surrendered their lives. And we invite you this morning to do exactly that. Get saved. Just bow your heads, everyone. What I'm going to do... Let's invite the worship team to return. What I'm going to do right now is keep your heads bowed and just pray. I will ask anyone here who wants to repent of their sin and know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, just to put your hand up in the air and put it back down. And I will come and speak with you and pray with you at the end of this time together. Just show me that I want to repent. I want to be saved. If that's you, just put your hand up and put it back down. And I will come and speak with you. Thank you. And thank you. Anybody else? Great. Father, move in this place, O oh God. Save in this place, Lord. Open their eyes, O oh God. Anybody else here want to turn their lives to Jesus Christ? It's the most important decision you will ever make. We'll just give you one second to make your peace with God. Lord, I thank you for those who have responded here. And I pray your almighty grace to come down upon them for revelation of your goodness and your glory to fill their lives. And God, for those of us here who are saved, may we go from this place and bring the message of the gospel to all mankind. That as the disasters increase, as you have said, that we will be ready with an answer. He has, He is, and He will. He is doing something. And He has done something for you, folks. For those who didn't respond to salvation, I pray, God, that you would tarry with them, be patient with them, and lead them to you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Let's just stand and...